You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon and welcome to the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it has been rainy today. And we're happy it's raining here in Oregon, you know, because we just don't get enough rain in Oregon. Um, actually, we are because last week, at the end of the week, we were in red flag fire conditions around here. We actually had a 75-acre fire breakout uh, just outside of Cottage Grove here in Lane County where we lost a house and, and had um, a couple hundred homes ready to evacuate if the fire uh, got any worse. Fortunately, we were able to get that under control pretty quickly. Um, but it was getting pretty dry pretty early, which is pretty scary in Oregon after the last couple summers. And so we're happy that it's raining. <laughs> My allergies also appreciate that it's raining somewhat. That, you know, the first rain we got yesterday was that kind of light rain that just barely wets the ground. And you could see all these, you know, at the edges of the puddles, these lines of yellow-green pollen, you know, just taking at the edges of the puddles. And you knew that, you know, there's a lot of pollen in the air. <laughs> yep, and Louie agreed with me. <laughs> So we're happy it's raining here in Oregon, but I wasn't here last week because I had a budget committee meeting that was overlapping the Bose Nose Show. And, you know, budget season's really kind of tough because we have these extra meetings beyond our commissioner meetings and all the other meetings that commissioners have to go to because we also take part as, you know, membership in different uh different agencies and, and different uh, organizations. Like I spend one this Monday, um, last the second Monday of every month, doing association of Oregon County meetings, which take me several hours. But the budget committee last week, we had eight hours of budget committee meetings um, on top of all the other meetings we have. Had a budget three-hour budget committee meeting yesterday. And we're going to have our final, we hope, budget committee meeting tomorrow night where we have public comments starting out at 5.30 in Harris Hall so people can come and provide comments on the budget. And then the budget committee will get down to some proposals for some amendments, make some decisions, and hopefully adopt the budget by the end of the evening. The other thing the budget committee does is the budget committee adopts the tax rates for um, Lane County. And, and that's something that actually only the budget committee can do. The board doesn't adopt them. It's the, just the budget committee under Oregon law. So um, they can adopt, you know, depending on anywhere from zero to the max that's allowed um, under the law for various things like our permanent tax rate, the public safety levy, which, you know, the max is 55 cents per thousand. We also adopt the tax rate for the um, levy that was put on for the extension service in 4-H. That's one and a half cents per thousand. Um, The permanent rate. Uh, is a dollar twenty-eight per thousand, and we've been uh, levying the max of that. The uh, public safety levy we actually, um, for several years, only levied thirty-eight cents out of the fifty-five um, because we didn't need the full amount. We leveled levied fifty-one and a half cents last this last budget year, and I think we're going up to the full fifty-five cents this year for the first time since the first year we levied it. Um, so. At least that's the proposal. We'll see what the budget committee does. But there are a couple of things going on in the budget committee uh, that have been conversations, one of which is it looks like, you know, trying to read the tea leaves in Salem, that we won't be getting um, 
enough of an increase in our Community Corrections Act funding and Justice Reinvestment Grant funding to make up for the inflationary cost of the programs those were funding, and some of those programs are expanding. And it actually looks like we might go backwards a little bit on some of that funding, so we'll be making cuts out of that, the programs that are funding that. And that was one of the places where we had funded some of the DA staff positions um, in order to um, kind of cover some of the cuts that were made to the DA in about 2011 and 12 as we went through those horrible years in our budget where we had to cut 20% um, out of our, our general fund budget one year and 8% two consecutive years in a row uh, and real dollar cuts, not cuts in the growth. That was cuts from the year before uh, total dollars. Um, we're, you know, the proposed budget right now is $710 million for the upcoming year, which will be the first over $700 million budget we've ever passed. Um, the year I came in as a commissioner um, in 2011, the previous budget had been $600 million, and we had to go to a $480 million budget that year, so that was the 20% cut. Um, and, uh, but getting back to the DA staff, it looks like we might, if, you know, everything happens um, badly with community corrections and justice reinvestment money, there's 3.2 positions in the DA staff that are funded from those funds that might have to be cut out of that funding source. So one of the things I'm proposing uh, for tomorrow night's budget committee meeting is an amendment to move some money around and fund those 3.2 positions um, utilizing general fund money, which will be freed up by moving some federal force money from the road fund to support sheriff's office operations and taking some general fund out of the sheriff's office and moving it to the DA's office, as well as there was a proposal um, because some of the commissioners were complaining and, and wanted um, to have assistance, you know, staff purely for the, at the commissioners um, back and call rather than county administrations back and call. There's a proposal to add one FTE to the budget to um, provide assistance to the commissioners, and I was going to move that into the DA's office. So um, kind of a proposal to backfill the DA's office and make sure, and I want to explain why this is important. The funding for the Community Corrections and Justice Reinvestment Grant funding is passed by the state as a pool of funds that get distributed to each county. And the way it gets distributed is based on the percentage of folks that we have under supervision in our community, which means the number of people we have under parole and probationary supervision compared to the rest of the state. So right now, uh, we have 9.57% of the total population of folks under supervision in Lane County. So we'll get 9.57% of that pool of money for those programs. Well, the way we get people under supervision is you have to try them and convict them first, which means when the DA staff gets cut, which is what happened back in 11 and 12 and 13, we lose our ability to process people through to conviction. And what happened was we used to have 12% of the total people under po uh, of the population pool, and we got 12% of that money. After the cuts, after a few years of cuts in the DA staff, we fell backwards to 8%. So you can imagine what that did to the funding available to fund things like our parole and probation officers, uh, jail sales for um, sanctions uh, for parole violations. Um, we funded um, sheriff's work crew for, for sanctions, you know, for alternate sanctions for parole violations. Um, all those systems had to contract with that. So when you cut the DA's office, you cut off future funding from the state. So one of the things we really 
uh, wanted to make sure of, or I want to make sure of, is we don't go through that cycle again, that we maintain our level of staffing in the DA's office so we can maintain our percentage of the pool against the rest of the state. We were able to recover some of that when we, we found a way to fund those DA staff through the, this other budget. And, and I just don't want to lose, I don't want to backtrack. Going from 8% up to 9% a couple of, uh, last budget cycle added $3 million in state funding for, you know, all these various um, restorative justice programs we're doing through the Justice Reinvestment Grant and for parole and probation to do things like, um, you know, we fund things like sponsors through that money, uh, you know, and we also fund, we started a program with that funding in the last budget cycle to have some gender specific parole officers um, that are trained specifically to deal with the issues of women that are involved in the criminal justice system because they have completely different um, criminogenic motivations and completely different um, needs as far as trying to get better and get reintegrated into into um, society, particularly the fact that almost every woman that has committed a crime is also a victim of a crime and has or has been a victim. So there's a lot of trauma involved in women um, in, involved in the uh, criminal justice system. And they need they need a different sort of treatment. And we, we started a program that's to specifically deal with those women and help them get back on track. And mind you, a lot of these women are also mothers. Uh, so getting them back on track is about making families whole and making sure that their children don't become the folks that are involved with the criminal justice system in the future. So a lot of dollar savings down the road in doing those kind of programs. But that's why it's so important to hold the DA's office whole, which gets me back to the commissioner's assistance. And the commissioner's assistance for me is a non-starter. Um, when I came onto the board uh, back in 2011, there was this lawsuit going on, Dumb Dive versus Handy. I think folks might remember that one being in the news that they were around long enough. But what it was about was the commissioner's utilizing some non-public meetings to try and prearrange the budget to approve half-time assistance for the commissioners, um, which they eventually did in a supplemental budget later. Um, and that's kind of what they got dinged for in the handy lawsuit. They kind of got stopped the first time around because it kind of got exposed and they were, they were going to shut 84 jail beds down at the same time of adding two and a half FTE to the Board of Commissioners uh, budget to put these half-time positions for each commissioner. Um, when I came on the board, I immediately made a proposal to cut that from our budget. Um, and I also proposed cutting our office budgets. We each got $14,000 plus a year to spend for just keeping our office going. The first round of cuts, I cut that down to $10,000 a year. And the following year, I cut it to 4,000. And it's been 4,000 ever since. And I have rarely ever come close to spending that $4,000. In fact, the only time I've come close was when we transferred some of that money to the Egan Warming Center to keep to buy some equipment for them uh, one year. But so there's a push again for commissioner's assistance. And, um, you know, I understand fully that this is not a, a 40 hour a week job. Um, I can't tell you how many hours I spend doing commissioner business. <clears throat> and as a rural commissioner, it's really difficult because there's no cities underneath of my constituents, you know, underneath the county that my constituents can go to first for help. In fact, you know, most of the constituent problems for folks are something that would be handled by a city nuisance complaints, uh, complaints about law enforcement, zoning issues, building permit issues, all that would be city, you know, taken care of by cities so that urban commissioners that have the city of Eugene and the city of Springfield as the first line of government 
don't get nearly as much constituent contact as the East and the West Lane Commissioners, where we're handling the majority of unincorporated Lane County. And uh, there's a little bit of unincorporated Lane County in the North Eugene um, District in the River Road area. And there's a little bit of unincorporated Lane County in the uh, Springfield District out towards uh, Cedar Flats in that area. Um, but the majority of unincorporated residents live in East and West Lane District. So we get a lot of constituent calls. And, and yeah, there are times I wish I had had an assistant that I could say, could you follow up on this for me? And, and, but I have to do that. And it takes a lot of time. In addition, I still have to attend all the meetings, like the eight hours of budget committee meetings I had this week. And I still have to do the background reading for the board meetings and background meetings for the Homes for Good board for meetings and the background reading for the Association of Oregon Counties board meetings. You know, all that stuff has to still get taken care of. So I understand and I appreciate that uh, two of our, our, our two new commissioners, Heather Buck and Joe Burney, I have seen a work ethic with them that I really appreciate. They're working hard. So I can understand that they're feeling stressed and they want assistance. But at the same time, when I can't provide a the level of sheriff's patrol that I would like to see in Lane County, I can't justify providing myself an assistant or any commissioner an assistant. We cut those out of the budget when I first came on as commissioner. I can't vote for them to come back or support them coming back in any way, shape, or form, particularly when I know that there's one commissioner that's still practicing law while being a commissioner. And I don't see the taxpayers paying for an assistant to that commissioner while he's still doing business outside of his commissioner's office. You know, so that that's just you know, and I can't approve commissioner's assistance just for the commissioners that are working hard. You know, so, so it's either an all or nothing, which means if we do approve assistance in any shape or form, we're expanding our office budget so we can use them to pay for assistance. That means I'm going to be giving this person that's practicing law an assistance so they have the time to go out and practice law and that assistance is being paid for by taxpayer money and the money they're reaping practicing law is going into their pocket. That just doesn't work for me. Until I know every commissioner has divorced themselves from earning money outside of their commissioner's position, I can't support adding assistance to commissioners no matter how hard they work. So it's gonna be an interesting debate about that tomorrow night because I think there's going to be a proposal to expand the commissioner's office budget so that they can use their office budgets to hire assistants. So we'll see how that goes tomorrow night, which gets us down to the final thing that's going on with um, the budget that's going to be a little bit controversial, which is our membership in the Association of ONC Counties. And of course, I always have to start with, because not everyone knows what ONC counties are, that's the Oregon and California Railroad lands counties. Um, the Oregon and California Railroad is a defunct railroad that was started back in, in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, to uh, run a north-south railroad from California to Washington State through Oregon. Um, that's the name Oregon and California Railroad. And, uh, as part of the incentivizing to the company that was supposed to take this on, they were given every other section of land, it, you know, that, that square mile, 640 acres of land within a couple miles, I forget how far the distance was from either side of the proposed route. And they were supposed to use the proceeds of selling off that land to private citizens to pay for the building of the railroad. But it turned out that the, it was kind of a scam. They built a couple bridges, and that was about it. Mostly they just wanted to get a hold of the land and sell it. So the federal government took the land back, then gave it back to the counties, which was where it was supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to be federal. It was supposed to be land available to settlers. 
And then the counties at that time weren't exactly all honest. So there was some land being given away to relatives of county commissioners and things like that. So the feds took it back again and took ownership of these lands. And this is all happening around the turn of the century. And so there's this checkerboard pattern from the California border up through um, the Willamette Valley uh, of these lands that have been left over from this old railroad effort that stayed in federal ownership. And in 1937, Congress, under pressure of the Oregon and California Counties Association, um, passed a bill um, called you know, the ONC Act, the Oregon and California Railroad Lands Act, which set aside those lands that were left over permanently and said for the primary purpose of sustainable timber harvest, for the benefit of the counties, those lands lie within. So there are 18 counties in Oregon that have these lands, and Douglas County and Lane County have the most by, by a, a long shot. And uh, those lands have traditionally been harvested, and the revenue from that harvest was split 50-50 with the federal government, where uh, they used their portion to pay for the cost of managing the lands and building the roads to get to the harvest and we got 50% into our general funds to use for running our governments. And it worked out really well for a long time. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we have such low tax rates in a lot of those ONC counties, because that was paying for the general government of the county. Um, so this association was, was formed and actually generated that, that act. And that act has been in place since 1937. And the, and the associations continued on and has actually been the primary advocate for trying to return to some level of harvest of those lands and management of those lands so that they benefit the counties. At the same time, they were also a driving um, advocate for the Secure Rural Schools Act, which replaced some of those timber payments when the harvest went to almost zero. You know, when the Spotted Owl and some other Endangered Species Act and the Northwest Forest Plan have been challenged in court, all, you know, all the issues that have been going on that have reduced harvests you know, along those lands. And uh, it's been very beneficial for Lane County to stay involved in that because we've reaped millions of dollars in federal payments based on the advocacy of this, this organization. And more recently, that organization uh, discovered that the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest um, folks in USDA uh, had sequestered, you know, the 6.3% sequester of, of, of the payments to the counties illegally because those, those payments are outside the federal budget. Um, and they successfully lobbied um, the administration through their attorney and with the help of Senator Wyden uh, and, and um, some uh, folks and other folks in Congress to get that sequester lifted. And that just in this, the lifting that sequester in two successive budget years, the amount of funds that were released to Lane County from the Secure Rural Schools payment was $600,000. Now the current dues that are coming up on in, the, in our budget for that association are about $76,000, $79,000, less than $80,000. Um, I think our return on investment's been pretty good there. Now, the big knock against the ONC Counties Association is we have sued the federal government at times. And in fact, we're involved in a lawsuit now on the expansion of the um, Cascade Siskiyou National Monument. And the reason for that is they took in a bunch of ONC lands in the expansion of that monument in direct conflict with the 1937 Act. And our lawsuit's basically about if you either can't take those lands utilizing a subsequent Act of Congress, which was the Antiquities Act, which allows presidents to set aside monuments that, that President Obama used to expand the Cascade system. National Monument, or 
if you do take those lands in, you have to give like amount of public lands to the counties in exchange. So they have to go out and find the same number of acres of similar land and add that back into the ONC uh, land bank. That's really what the loss is about. It's not that we're against the monument. It's not that we're against public land. It's about resolving the conflict with the original ONC Act and the Antiquities Act. And it's a constitutional question that has to be answered through the courts. It's the only place it can get answered unless Congress passes legislation that resolves the conflict. So you know, everyone's, you know, some of the folks from Oregon Wild and some of the environmental groups are, are claiming that the association's anti-public land the Oregon and California Railroad lands are public lands, but public lands that were set aside for a very specific purpose, and they're very pro those public lands. You know, so it's just it's interesting to hear what gets said, but that's going to be an interesting battle with the budget. So I want to stop and remind folks that we don't have to talk budget, and we don't have to talk about what Jay wants to talk about. We can talk about what you want to talk about. Just give us a call at 646-721-9887 and just press one and that lets you get in on the conversation. It lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know that you want to get in on the conversation. Otherwise, we might think you're just calling to listen to the show, which does happen now and then. We get people that call in and listen on their cell phones when they can't get close to a computer. So again, it's 646-721-9887. And if you're watching our Facebook live stream, it's right down there at the bottom of the uh, screen. If I can get my finger over top of it, there we go. You know, it's really weird to watch yourself on camera because everything's backwards. I don't know how the weathermen do it. Uh, <laughs> so um, again, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about on the Bozo Show. I'm going to move away from the budget a little bit, and we're going to get into the courthouse maybe because that's coming up. The, the actual uh, ballots are due this coming Tuesday. By the next Pose Nose show, we'll know whether we have approved the $154 million bond levy that's going to be paid over 20 years and uh, cost $0.27 cents per thousand of set value. Uh, approximately $50 a year for the average assessed value home in Lane County. Um, and that will go towards, you know, matching up with some state funds and building a courthouse. Um, there's been a lot of questions that have come up about the courthouse. And a couple of them, you know, there's one uh, anti-argument in the voters pamphlet. And one of the things I want to point out is that anti-argument actually has bad information in it. Um, the number of trials is inaccurate that he points out. And it also is partial information. That one of the things um, that uh, I want to, I'm trying to pull up an email here so I read correct information to you, is it only really refers to um, the number of jury trials we have in the courthouse and tries to say that you know, we don't have enough jury trials to justify 18 uh, courtrooms that are built for 12-person juries, which is also partial information because the courtrooms are built to where they can have a 12-person jury, but they're flexible courtrooms, and some of them won't even have a jury box in them because what they need is more tables for multiple-party um, uh, court um, hearings where, you know, things like um, family law where you might be doing custody where you actually have a table where the state is involved in the, in the custody hearing. Mom and dad have separate tables, you know, <laughs> and there has to be multiple tables for attorneys and, and their clients and, um, you know, the state's there representing the kids' interests and mom's there with her attorney and the dad's there with their attorney. It gets to be a lot of tables uh, in the courtroom. But the 18 courtrooms we're proposing aren't just about jury trials. Um, there's trials that happen without juries. In fact, last year, 
there were 1,077 non-jury trials that went through a courthouse. And in addition to that, the court conducts a lot of hearings. You have hearings on motions. You have hearings, you know, to to receive a a uh, plea from a you know, and there's just an incredible number of hearings. In fact, it's 38,296 hearings in 2018. So you can imagine that's you know about 150 hearings a day that we're currently pushing through 13 mismatch-sized courtrooms, um, along with those court trials, those thousand court trials, and the the 111 jury trials that we actually process during the year. And those jury trials can take weeks. So you can imagine scheduling when somebody is in and out of a courtroom gets really tough and quite often hearings and processes get delayed out in time just to try and find an open courtroom and get it, get it scheduled in there when you know you can have control of that courtroom. Not to mention the fact that the courthouse has had some maintenance issues that have sometimes required it to shut down on a moment's notice, which throws everything into array. You know, we have a, you have a plumbing issue and the water gets shut down, you can't continue to hold court when there are no bathrooms available for jurors and staff, et cetera, and witnesses. Um, you know, we've had a couple issues where the elevators uh, have broken down at the same time and we can't move people with limited mobility between floors. Got to close the courts down. Um, so uh, some of the information coming out there is partial. And particularly that one negative argument only tries to talk about jury trials. Like that's the only thing that happens in the courthouse. And it's not just the hearings. It's not just the non-jury trial. There's other things that happen in those courtrooms, which is those specialty courts. And you know, we talked about Seattle is dying on this program before. When you think about what really is helping people with mental health and addiction challenges, specialty courts are one of the places where there's that combination of accountability, where they've got the stick of going to prison kind of hanging over their heads or some other, even jail time on misdemeanors, it's hanging over their head to try and stay with the program to fix some of the issues, whether it's a mental health issue or an addiction issue or both. It's a program where you come in on a regular basis and you meet with the judge that, that runs the, the specialty courts and the DA's office is involved there. The parole and probation is involved. There's usually treatment services that are involved. Um, so all that team has to get together with each client that's involved in those specialty courts on a regular basis in the courtroom to, to check progress, see where they're going, you know, update plans for those folks. And eventually those folks graduate out. And I think there was a news article uh, in the Register Guard recently about our 25th anniversary of our drug court having a graduation last week and how the, you know, some of the people that were involved in that graduation, incredible stories from family about how those treatment and specialty courts give them their family members back um, over time. That's the long, you know, one of the long-term cures to homelessness and some of the issues you see in Seattle's dying is specialty courts. Well, there's currently about 140 people involved in our specialty courts right now in Lane County. So if they're meeting at least once a month with their in, in the courtroom for approximately an hour or so a time uh, with all these various people, you can imagine specialty courts, a pretty high user of court space, besides the 38,000-plus hearings and 1,000-plus trials. We've got those 140 people involved in specialty courts. So... I, I hate seeing some of the partial information that's being put out there to say we're building too big of a courthouse. Um, we're not. We went through a very definitive uh, use of experts that are nationally recognized from the, the Center for State Courts, um, and they helped us size this facility based on 
our current caseloads and how courts are utilized and where they see courts going, even involving um, the newer technologies that allow for um, folks to, to testify remotely, maybe you know, expert witnesses and all. Um, there's still, you know, even with all that, the, the courthouse is, is playing that way. And then I've also heard some recent um, comparisons between our courthouse project and the federal courthouse project and how the federal courthouse only cost $94 million. Well, of course, that $94 million was in 2004, and I don't believe it's quite a, an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Our total project cost of $252 million is everything from buying the land to furnishing the building, you know, desks and chairs for the staff, um, and everything in between architects, engineers, permits, contingency funds, our uh, interest we're going to have to pay on the bonds, all of that's in there. The $94 million for the federal courthouse, I don't think included all of that. I think it was site work and building, and that's it. But if you take that 2004 number and bring it up to today's dollars, it's $160 million. Now, what they built for that $164 million was a building that's about 10% smaller than the one we're proposing, but talk about inefficient. They only got six courtrooms out of that, that, that amount of space. And if you work out, you know, the number of square feet per courtroom is just incredible. Um, and in addition, there's less people housed in that building than are going to be housed in our building. We're putting the DA the sheriff's office, parole probation, the public defenders, and all the court staff into this building. And the court staff ultimately for 18 judges is what we're, we're expecting Lane County to have by the end of the 60-year the window that we were projecting out. We're, at, we're expected to get two more judges in the next couple bienniums uh, if, the, if the legislature approves the budget. There's actually a bill that would add two judges in this uh, by any, but I'm not sure it's going to pass. But it's, you know, that um, difference between the federal courthouse and this courthouse basically means that, you know, they're looking at, they basically spent about $27 million per courtroom, where we're talking about $14 million per courtroom. You know, for 10% more space, we're getting three times the number of courtrooms. And I'm sure that our caseload and all that is way beyond what that federal courthouse process is. So, you know, I know people are concerned. It sounds like we're spending a lot more money than the, the federal courthouse. We're putting a lot more inside that building. That's, you know, one of the reasons why it might cost more. We're also talking about the entire cost. And we're also saying that that is a not to exceed number. We're actually hoping we'll go lower than that. And we're doing some things to try and get lower than that, including we're going to have a construction audit firm involved and in, that's going to not be the contractor or the architect that's going to look at every invoice coming in from the, the CMGC uh, firm that's doing the construction and, and make sure that we're um, doing things correctly and will help us save money. In addition, we're going to do some value engineering up front. And when we adopted, uh, you know, we're going to move forward with the courthouse project and, and move forward with the purchase of the land from the city. Um, we adopted some values. And one of those values was to definitively that we were going to be transparent. So that's part of the audit function. We will publicize that audit. So everybody can see how we spent that money. So if we're buying, um, you know, Italian marble or something like that, people are know we're going to we bought Italian marble for that building because we're going to have it very transparent. Um, we're not going to buy Italian marble, by the way, because one of the things um, we have uh, as part of the community benefits agreement is we want this to be as local materials as possible. I don't think Italian marble is very local. Uh, nor is it very environmentally sensitive to buy a building material and pay for the carbon footprint cost of shipping it from Italy to Eugene, Oregon. 
Um, so there's a lot built into the pro into the project. Um, hopefully that um, we can get uh, you know demonstrate to folks just as we demonstrated with the uh, jail levy that we spend your dollars carefully and we're transparent about how we spend them. And we even get third parties involved with these audits and publicize those audits so you can see we're, we're keeping our promises. So it's not the federal courthouse. It's actually a much more efficient building than the federal courthouse will ever be. And it has a usage that is far beyond what a lot of people are talking about out there, uh, particularly the, the, the anti-argument that was in the voters pamphlet. So I'm going to take a deep breath here and give you a chance to call in again at 646-721-9887 here on the Bose No Show. And just press 1 so we know you want to get on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887 if you have any questions about our budget, about the courthouse. If not, I'm going to take a break, and we're going to go to our favorite segment of the show, What Were They Thinking? And this is, you know, just... You know, and Robin, my my producer extraordinaire, has put up our graphic for what were they thinking there if you're watching us on Facebook Live. And this week's winner of the What Were They Thinking Award were those folks that, um, you know, last Friday was a red flag day here in Oregon, in, in Western Oregon. Red flag days are basically a warning that there is high fire danger. We had very low humidity abnormally high temperatures, and a lot of wind. And I live behind Elmira High School. And I put a picture up on Facebook Friday night um, of some folks that decided to park with their hot catalytic converters in a fire lane. And, you know, they kind of pulled partially out of the fire lane, but they were still in the fire lane with their vehicles. If you're across that red line at all, you are in violation of the fire lane. And so that not only were they being dangerous by pulling into tall, dry grass with their catalytic converters, but they're also blocking the fire lane access to the school. And that, that wasn't the only activity going on at the school that night. You know, so, you know, all those kids that are in the school doing stuff, if there was a problem, the fire trucks may not have been able to get to the back half of the school. Um, not only that, my my gravel road comes off the paved road right there at the baseball fields. And we've got no parking signs all over the place because that's our fire access to about 17 homes here on Fur Grove Lane and Bridgeway Lane um, back behind the high school. And lo and behold, there are people parked right in front of the no parking signs. I mean, these are, these are those placard signs with the fluorescent no parking on them. You know, in addition, the ones down the, uh, the paved access have the no parking fire lane, which is up on our site. Well, I got a hold of Terry Nye, who's the local fire chief, and he came over and um, asked the, the staff there to ask folks to, to move their vehicles. Well, it turns out that two of the vehicles were the umpires that were calling the game. <laughs> they weren't real happy about it, but one of the umpires comes back and he gets in the car that's right in front of the no parking sign at the end of Fur Grove Lane there at the gravel. I mean, just dead in front of it. And, and Terry looks at him and goes and, and points at the sign and goes, oh, I didn't see it. This is the guy calling balls and strikes at the game. <laughs> and he couldn't see a great big fluorescent sign that says no parking right next to his car. What were you thinking? <laughs> Oh my gosh! I, I, you know, and I sort of lost it on Facebook a bit. Called a few people idiots and and did some shaming there that I probably shouldn't have done. But mind you, I walked out and saw all these folks parked in the grass in the fire lane, et cetera. Right after I got an email update on the evacuation notice we just had issued for the wildfire down in Cottage Grove that had started during this red flag warning, so. I, I'm sorry if I may have gone a little bit too far uh, Friday evening, but it was the end of a very long week, including all the budget issues. 
on top of the fact that we were having, you know, having to issue people, you know, get ready notices to leave their 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 homes while we had already lost one home to this wildfire just outside of Cottage Grove. Um, so you can understand I was a little overly sensitive about that. But really, what were you thinking when you parked on top of that? And, and one of the pictures I took, you could read the no parking on the pavement right in front of the car. <laughs> uh, just It amazes me. And, and it really, the umpires that parked illegally, that's, that's great. <laughs> you guys are supposed to be the rule keepers for the game. And you can't follow the parking rules nor could you see the sign. And, and as Terry Knight said to me, the sign was about as big as a strike zone. <laughs> so um, that's my what were they thinking for the week. Um, uh, and I hope maybe in the future uh, the school does a, some kind of better job of directing folks. The faculty parking lot is not much further down that fire lane and had empty spaces in it. And there's the student parking and other guest parkings around the front side of the school. It's, you know, it's on the other end of the football field, which is 100 yards, maybe 150 yards. You park in a fire lane instead of walking 150 yards to an athletic event? Really? Okay. All right. I got to get off of that. My blood pressure is going up. Uh, <laughs> Now, now, now I'm going to talk about Salem, talk about blood pressure. So, what's the news from Salem? Hit it. Oh. This week, in news from Salem, the Republicans came back. As you know, we had the great walkout last week, um, and they finally came back, and we got a new $2.8 billion per biennium tax from the uh, Oregon uh, legislature um, passed. Now they could actually hold the vote. Of course, it was a party-line vote with the Democrats voting yes and Republicans voting no on business, and it's a um, commercial activities tax, they, they called it, which was basically the same thing as the gross receipts tax that was voted down by the, the, the citizens of Oregon in Measure 97 uh, just last year. Uh, so it's kind of like what part of no didn't the legislature hear, but, you know, I get it. You know, it was a grand, sort of a grand bargain that the Republicans struck to come back, and they were going to have to come back sooner or later. Um, they couldn't stay out and not pass a budget. You know, there's a there is a statutory obligation. Uh, eventually, the state police would have hunted them down and literally dragged them back to Salem in handcuffs to put them on the on the floor so that the votes could be taken. Um, but they they did get something out of it. They, they got the uh, legislature to agree to drop the omnibus uh, gun bill, uh, Senate Bill 948. Uh, that would have been horrible, or is it 958? I can't even remember the, the number on that one. And they also got them to drop the uh, mandatory vaccine bill. Both these bills were about civil rights. So, you know, yeah, the, the, the Republicans let them, you know, pass a tax that they probably weren't going to be able to stop anyway. It's probably going to get referred to the ballot by business groups anyway, uh, but they got they defended civil rights uh, of folks um, in the process. And yes, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I think everyone should vaccinate their kids. I don't believe all the the the, the scare stuff about vaccines, but folks, parents have a right to make that determination, not the state. Sorry, it's kind of one of the places I draw the line. You know, and uh, you know, same thing. You know, when it comes to you know some other issues, and, and you know, with the gun stuff, there's a clear Second Amendment right to bear arms. A lot of the stuff that was in that omnibus gun bill were going to trample over all over the Second Amendment. And in fact, 
Oregon's version of the Second Amendment that's contained in the Oregon Constitution even more definitive about that right to bear arms. You know, um, you know it doesn't talk about, uh, you know, uh, the need of a militia or anything. It just says the citizens have the right, <laughs> period. So that's kind of, uh, you know, where I am, you know, on that. I thought it was actually useful. And apparently they got some kind of deal to go back and relook at the cap and trade bill in a more uh, 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 deliberate manner. Um, so, I, but I haven't heard what the details of that are yet. So, yes, they got their million dollar, billion dollar a year tax passed. And the other portion of it that it got was they got a, a at least a, an acknowledgement and a proposal out of the Democrat caucus for some. PERS reforms, and I referred to it in my promo for the show as PERS reform light, because that's basically what it is, a little bit of redirect of some of the um, uh, individual um, account um, monies towards uh, the PERS uh, unfunded liability, but the biggest portion of what's going to hold the rates down for school districts and local governments in the state, uh, as far as that goes, is a financial trick they're using of extending the payback for the unfunded liability from 20 years to 22 years. That doesn't sound like a big change, like, you know, refinancing a mortgage, you know, from, you know, a 30-year to a 32-year mortgage wouldn't sound that big, but it's not just that. There are already 20-year mortgages on the books when it comes to that unfunded liability that have been assessed against these agencies in previous bienniums. And what the, their proposal does is not just take the future stuff and say they're going to use 22 years to um, allocate that payback. They're taking all those past ones that are already partially paid back and resetting them to 22 years. So the 20-year payback that was set in the last biennium that's down to 18 now is going to become 22. And the one from a couple biennium that was down to 16, they're going to reset to 22. And, and so forth and so forth, looking backwards. Everyone, all of that unfunded liability is going to reset to a 22-year payback, which actually um, increases the total dollars that have to be paid back by the agencies, the, the unfunded liability. But what it does is it, it dampens the, the, the increase in the rates they have to pay as a percentage of payroll. So instead of going to a 27% rate in this biennium, they'll only go to a 25% rate. Instead of going to a 31% um, uh, rate or so in the following biennium, it'll only be 28%. You know, so it kind of just levels that off. But what happens is after about 15 years, the rates are going to start falling down. Under this plan, they keep, stay, stay up. And there's it, it a crossover point, and out in future years, the, the rates are going to stay higher longer. So it's kind of like pulling your credit card out and paying off your car loan, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the, the minimum payment on the credit card is smaller, and, and you have a longer time to pay it back. Yes, your payment monthly payment might go down, but you're ultimately going to pay a lot more in interest. And mind you, all this is based on continuing in, in a, a rate of return on the investments in those PERS accounts of 7.2% a year. And if anyone watched the stock market on Monday, it dropped 600 points. That may not be such a great prediction. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I referred to it as PERS reform light, because really all they're doing is pulling out the credit card and paying off the car loan. In fact, they're pulling out the credit card and paying off the mortgage and, and paying it off over a longer period of time. So, yes, the rates, it, it does help the school district budget some because it will keep their rates down some. There's still going to be an increase, but it's really not dealing with some of the root problems. And there's some other reforms I've talked about in the past that actually get that to lowering the unfunded actuarial liability in the system. They also need to lower the assumed rate of return, but they don't like doing that because that raises the percent um, fees that, that some of the school districts might have to pay. 
So PERS reform lights up there at, at the, the legislature, but the great thing is at least there's something proposed. And now we've got something for folks to work from. And that will help um, have a bill that can be amended, maybe made better. And of course, as soon as any reform gets proposed, the public employee unions have already come out um, and said they're going to sue. <laughs> so, but I think most of what was proposed is stuff that can be done legally under the Morrow decision uh, uh, that basically defined that you couldn't change any benefits that have been accrued to date, but you could change benefits looking forward and, and, and how you pay some of the unfunded liabilities. So it'll be interesting to see how successful a lawsuit against this would be. But um, it'll be, it's interesting. Um, so it starts a conversation. So the Republicans coming back, yeah, we, we got the tax that was probably going to get shoved down our throats anyway because they couldn't stay out forever. But what they got was a, a, at least a PERS reform proposal that can be worked on because there was nothing going on at all up until this point. And then they got the dropping of the gun bill and they got the dropping of the vaccine bill. Of course, they can come back in future um, sessions and they probably will, but we'll fight that battle when we get to it. Um, and then, uh, you know, they got a, a, a relook at the cap and trade bill. So that, that's got pretty much there for, for not going to work for a few days, you know? Um, you know, the, the teachers left for a day last week, and uh, the, the Republicans left for, for almost a week there. Um, I don't know who got more out of the, their, their time off, uh, un, you know, their paid time off for not doing their jobs. <laughs> so pretty interesting stuff going on there up in Salem, all sorts of fascinating stuff, but, um, you know, got couple minutes left in the Bose Nose Show here. Still time to talk about what you want to talk about. Any questions you have about the budget, the courthouse, PERS, um, any other topics you want to bring up here, 646-721-9887. Just press 1 to get in on the show. Again, that's 646-721-9887, and just press 1, and we'll get you in on the show. Um, a couple other things about the budget going on. There's an article in, the, in uh, not an article, but an editorial in the Register Guard that focused on this a little bit. We are actually starting to, to, to place a little bit of one-time money. We got a settlement from Comcast uh, that we have a million dollars from that we're going to actually invest in a crisis center um, for um, mentally ill people that need to be um, taken care of more than 24 hours. We have a crisis center now, but the, the way it's set up, they, they can't keep people overnight more than 24 hours. They can keep them overnight if it's less than 24 hours. Um, at that point, they got to be moved into some other care, and, and a lot of times that care ends up being either the emergency room or the state hospital. Um, and we, we just need a place you know, that folks that are in these acute mental health crises can go other than jail, which tends to be, you know, a police officer, you know, shows up after a complaint about a uh, public order complaint where it's, you know, disorderly conduct or trespass, criminal trespass. And it's usually because somebody's in a mental health crisis, you know, they're standing on the corner screaming obscenities after nine o'clock at night in a residential neighborhood. You know, they won't leave a property because they think it's theirs. You know, and it's not um, because of you know, you know, either dementia or some other issue going on. Those folks, the police officer just wants to resolve the situation. They have a choice. They can take that person to the ER or they can take them to jail and book them in. Neither place is really the right place for them. And 
both those places are the most expensive places to, to treat that person. So if we can get a crisis center where the, those folks can go instead, um, it's going to save a lot of money in those other systems and maybe have a little more space for the real criminals and have a little less waiting time for folks that are really injured in the EER services. Instead of having a bed taken up by somebody that's been strapped down and screaming back there, you know, um, and occupying time of attendance, et cetera. Um, so that's one of the things built into our budget this year is that $1 million investment and some other things with homeless initiatives we're hoping to move forward. So lots going on with the budget. We'll be talking about that more next week because hopefully we'll have adopted the budget by the next Bozno show. We'll know what the result of the bond uh, courthouse um, election is. So we'll get to talk to you next week on the Bozno show. Thank you for listening this week, though. And we'll be back 4 o'clock Wednesday afternoon right here from beautiful downtown Elmira, Thank you for watching the Bose Nose Show and or listening if you're just listening on, on uh, Blog Talk Radio or watching on Facebook. Have a great week.